Hello, we're back. We have another special guest. Anna has, is off doing more leadership seminars. I feel like she just mostly does that these days, but we have a very special guest. Colleen, please say hi and introduce yourself. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me on. Um, my name is Colleen Coolidge. I have been uh, the CISO at companies like Twilio and um, Segment. And um, I've also been practicing security in uh, larger enterprise type companies, but um, have been around the block maybe a couple of times and I'm now happily taking some time off. Colleen's an absolute badass. We're, we're very happy that you're here with us. Thank you. All right, Leaf. special announcement, do it. Yeah, sounds good. Um, so I wanted to give a quick plug for Day of Security, which is a great organization dedicated to helping people from underrepresented genders join the information security industry. They're doing a hybrid online and in-person Bay Area event May 18th and 19th and are looking for volunteers as well as sponsors. There's a link to this in the show notes as always. And if that's something that's interesting to you, uh, this is a great opportunity to help put on a great event. So definitely get involved if you have the time. Security is awesome. And I also feel silly every time I say the name. It's a great, I love the name. I think it's very creative. Awesome. Yeah. And hybrid events are one of those trends that I'm hoping go away. I did QCon uh, SF and then InfoQ or whatever as the, as a hybrid event. And it's just, it's weird because as a speaker, you have to do usually both. And if you do, if you structure a conference as like purely online, then you can do it well. But I feel like conferences that try to do both kind of end up doing neither one particularly well. So this one, at least from what I was looking at on the website was the virtual event is on one day and then the in-person event is the next day. Ah, okay. So I think it is like kind of two, two events, but awesome. Yeah. Check out our friends at security. All right. So let's do security news. I'm sure it's going to be a whole bunch of fun, you know, delightful things going well, right? Usually security news goes that way. First of all, only good news, only good news. All right. Last pass, last pass. More problems for LastPass. I, I honestly feel bad for them. So they announced a second breach that was related to the first breach. The threat actor used some of the, the access they got in the first breach to target LastPass cloud storage. And they basically got credentials from a senior DevOps engineer and used that to escalate to the protected cloud storage where they were able to decrypt things because they, they got keys that only a small group of people, including this DevOps engineer had. They ended up getting the credentials from that person by targeting his home environment. So they exploited Plex and then used that to get a key logger on his machine and then used that to get into the very special LastPass vault that had the decryption key for the cloud storage. And, you know, this is just LastPass is having an awful time here. On one hand, I feel very bad for them because, you know, how do you protect against attack surface, like, you know, your, your employee's home machine, you know, having a Plex vulnerability and things like that. On the other hand, there was some other stuff that they, they screwed up and it was entirely their fault. For example, the breach announcement for this, they basically buried, they put uh, no index on the search engine so that it wouldn't show up if you actually searched for it and some other things like that. I think from a breach response, we want to get the message out to anybody impacted. So shame on them for that part. And I guess, you know, at a high level here, my take is that this could be one of those, those breaches that really has major impact on a company. Like most of the time a, a security breach happens, company takes a stock hit, rolls on three months later, everyone forgot it happened. I think LastPass could be one of those um, kind of uh, 
forgot code spaces type things, you know, where it actually has meaningful impact on the business. So what do y'all think about this? I think that if web auth end and device trust isn't on your company's roadmap, like you need to take this story and go to whoever the important person is that doesn't agree that this is a good idea yet. And just be like, Hey, this is why we need to do it. Um, because I agree with you. It's, it's impossible for a company to protect their own network, let alone the networks of hundreds or thousands of employees. And really the only way that you even have a chance at doing this is like locking down stuff on the device. Would that have helped in this case though? Because the, the attacker was able to exploit the machine and install a keylogger. So if you, if you're on the box, then you can web, you can ride through the session, even if you do web authn, right? The last time I looked at it and maybe the, the information has changed, but I, I thought that they were using their personal machine to log into like company stuff. So I, I don't know if that that's true or not, but yeah, it wouldn't be perfect here, but like, at least if you could stop somebody from using an unmanaged device to have access to the, to this vault or, you know, to your, to their internal infrastructure, that would be a, a huge do, you know, defense mechanism here for something like this. Some of the problems are like the d- device trust vendors, there's not necessarily a consistent coverage across OS endpoints. Yeah, I know some don't support like Linux. You might have Linux in your fleet. And then to, in this case, you know, you might have certain things that you allow for on, on like a BYOD policy versus not. Knowing that I, I, ideally production systems aren't part of that policy, but I just wonder how, what what there is that you, you can have coverage for like every type of situation. What's crazy, I, I, I've joked with being a remote company, you know, when we do like office security, I'm like, oh, cool, Starbucks, because that's where everyone else works. Like, but also thinking about like a, what would a, a network in a backpack look like that you send to every like employee and say like, if this is how your work machine must be hooked up, or and whether that would even work as well. That stuff <laughs> runs into the same problem with VPNs, where somebody goes to somewhere that has a weird captive portal, and they're like, hey, I can't do work at the airport because this stupid VPN can't make it through the captive portal. Like, what do you, what do you want me to do? And it's like I feel like the backpack thing, unless it was just Wi-Fi only or the like cell cell network only or something like that. I feel like that would be pretty hard. I, you know, the aspect of this that hit me was like this, this kind of stuff can happen to any company, especially if you come into a company and there's a significant amount of maturing and cleanup that you need to do. Like you get into, you get into these things in the order that you can actually do them. And then as far as hundred percent coverage goes and hundred percent effectiveness, like you'll find out. Um, but the other piece of it is that this DevOps engineer was specifically targeted, you know, and I'm wondering if, you know, instead of making ourselves crazy, trying to do everything perfectly, if your people who have the most access, the people who, you know, if you were to um, take over their stuff, it would be easy to take down the company. Like what extra controls do we need to put on those people and the machines that they use and the things that they touch and the access that they have? It's like they need to be under some sort of high watch list because I just don't think that you could do that for for every scenario, but I think you have to pick and choose. That's a great point. Yeah. I think if you you can do really high touch stuff, if it's just this special group that has extraordinary access, if, if the attackers would have gone after normal engineer, then they wouldn't have been able to get into the vault that had this stuff. I actually, I feel bad for that DevOps engineer. That's who I feel bad for. I feel bad for LastPass, actually. You know, they they really screwed up the messaging. They should have been much more transparent about what happened and and quickly about it. But, you know, if you're, if you're targeted at this level, like most companies aren't going to be able to hold up to it well. So, uh, and, you know, this could, like I said, this could meaningfully impact their business. I think there's no question that they're trying they're trying to run a good shop, but you know they've had a really bad run 
in in press and then they haven't handled it great in some cases. Yeah. The amount of companies that are interesting to state level actors versus the number of companies that can actually defend against that type of thing is just way off. And there's so many companies that kind of fall into that bucket where it's like, Hey, this company is incredibly important to their customers, but is it even realistic to have them be able to defend against somebody who's this motivated and like this well-funded? Like, I, I don't, I don't know how you close that gap. Has anybody heard stories of the the incident response for companies that were using LastPass Enterprise? My understanding of that is there's two parts of the key. One was what was the attackers were able to get a hold of here. And the other part is the master key. In enterprise customers, my understanding is that the master key is shared across everybody and is basically visible to all users. So if that's the case, then you can figure that an attacker would it be able to get both pieces of the key and like totally decrypt the enterprise vault. And, you know, how do you even rotate something like that? What do you have in the enterprise vault? Like hundreds, maybe thousands of entries, and then you have to go rotate all of them. Sounds like a bad IR scenario for for many people at many companies. It's like the Circle CI breach where they were like, go change all of your keys that were anywhere. It's like, all right, (laughs) sounds good. Yeah, I think a lot of folks didn't even hear the like update two. Or I've, I've talked to some people where they're like, oh, well, it's just, you know, like URLs and, and things and notes, but it wasn't actually like the ability to get to the password. So we, we decided we were fine. And I'm like, oh, you should go read some more and, and then make the decision again. And PSA, if anybody hasn't, hasn't looked at this, you can have different numbers of derivation on your key, like different iterations. If you have a really old account, that might be a small number. So figure that attackers can basically do brute force. And then if you had a small number, and a relatively weak password, then they'll be able to get in. And they can also see what sites you have managed in LastPass and what email and you know user data you have associated. So they can probably pick the juicy target. So if anybody's not on this yet, you might want to go check those things and, and start rotating. I just came up with an idea that I feel like has some, some viability to it. So you know how companies like refresh their MacBooks like every three or four years or whatever, and then they're just like, I don't know what to do with this. What if you wiped all of those devices? And then when somebody joined, if you're like, you message them and you're like, Hey, do you have a personal computer you're happy with? And if they say no, you just send them one of these old MacBooks because I feel like a lot of companies get into problems where people use the device for a mixture of personal and company stuff. And a lot of people just like, don't even have a good personal computer and like, sure, they should go buy one. But if a company has just a bunch of four-year-old MacBooks, how many of these problems could you avoid by just sending something to somebody who, you know, this is effectively worthless for your company because you're not going to reissue it to another employee. Startup idea, Leaf. Get after it. Well, it just would be like a nice bonus. You're just like, oh, cool. Yeah, I actually don't really have a recent or personal computer. Like, thanks for the three-year-old MacBook, which is still going to last another five years probably. Yeah, it definitely like slims down the um, bring your own device issue because you have more control over it. I like it. Colleen, next story. Oh boy. So I was just thinking like folks keeping this in their head, like anybody who's used like the DNA services from like 23andMe, Ancestry.com. Well, there's one called like DNA Diagnostic Center. I'll just call them the DNA company guys. For some reason, I always fumble over that. Um, So this one, I feel bad for the people, I actually for everybody here, but I feel bad for the people at this particular company because it looks to me like they had and some sort of MSS, MSSP 
Um, so it just says like service provider. And um, that that outfit was in charge of monitoring for, you know, network issues and security issues and apparently reached out to the DNA company in like May of 2021. And then just like an automated little message that said, there's unusual activity on the, on your network uh, with no follow-up information. And so, you know, the DNA company was probably like, whatever, you know, we get messages all the time. And like, if there's no follow-up, if there's no details, do I need to care? And so they decided not to care. Um, and apparently there was months later that they actually did take action because that same service provider um, approached them and said, okay, now we have evidence that your network was actually infiltrated by Cobalt Strike, which is a pen testing tool. Um, and so I'll go into my editorial later, but then the resultant line that comes out of that is that the states of Ohio and Pennsylvania, those governments are punishing the DNA company for this breach and like not being all over it because apparently it allowed the attackers to gain access to some social security numbers and details about these customers, these state residents. And so it looks like it's about a cumulative fine of about $400,000. And so there's like general access information on 2.1 million people between the two states. And then the actual number of SSNs was about about 45,000. And one of the things that they need to do to, to come out from this, in addition to paying the fine, is they have this promise to upgrade their security, whatever that means. And they have to put in place some sort of standard policies. And these are apparently standard policies that most companies would already have. You know, I was thinking, okay, well, that kind of stuff can happen. Um, I didn't get any really detail from the articles about how that actually happened, but I thought how disappointing it is for your MSSP who's supposed to be watching things for you, particularly if that's not a core competency that your DNA company would have. They just send some sort of random, you know, automated message like, hey, it looks like there's unusual activity. That's not really actionable. And so one, bad on them. And then two, it sounded to me like the DNA company did act when they got a little bit more information from the MSSP, which is like, yes, you actually have uh, your network's been infiltrated. I mean, you know, shit happens. But then when I think about state officials getting involved, it really depends on the state official. And if they're telling them how to make the security better, I'm not really sure that, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the state of Ohio is really good at doing security. Um, maybe the state of P Pennsylvania is even better. But whatever I hear senators and people in the House of Representatives talking about technology in general, I and not sure that people who work in government are the right people unless they are specific advisors for this topic. And then I just thought, wouldn't it be better? Like the culture of security that I, I would love to see everywhere is just like put limits on everything. So Leaf and I have talked about like many times, and then we've implemented things where it's like, you've got like a limited window where somebody would have administrative access or too much access to something. They get it done. Then they close the window down. The access is no longer there. I also think that the footprint that you have, like how many servers that you're using or applications or whatever that sprawl happens to be, you need to shut that stuff down because this breach apparently happened with an old database that the DNA Diagnostic Center folks didn't really know was still around. And that tells me that they're not decommissioning and killing their old stuff. By doing that, like you, you could save a lot of money because then you're not paying to maintain this stuff. You're not paying for you know, whatever people that supposedly not upgrade or not secure this, um, you're not paying for like energy costs or any of that, but then also you're reducing your surface, uh, your attack surface area. So I'd really like to see, just kill everything that you don't need. Like, I was going to say a culture of killing, but it's 
culture of decommissioning? Like, it's, is there something that companies can do to make it fun? Is there like, hey, capture these costs, bring it to the CFO, and then that department gets like a piece of the pie or whatever it is. But I just think we need to have a bounty on stuff that the company no longer needs because once it gets neglected, it can be used against you. So, I love that. Yeah. yeah. No, I think, I think that one of the biggest problems that we face in security is organizational chaos. There's just so much stuff. So anything that you can do to simplify it, save money, save chaos. Uh, one question I had is what kind of a bullshit fine is $400,000? Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. I read that. I'm like, is this a joke? Yeah. I'll take 10 of them. <laughs> like, yeah. That's like not even two security engineers for a year. It's like, you probably save that easy by not doing any security stuff. Like, yes. Well, and it's, you know, again, going back to the governments of Ohio and Pennsylvania, they probably don't know, you know, they don't know how much security work costs, like even security consulting work, security engineers, security tools, you know, $400,000. What, what is that as a line item on your budget? So, yeah. What makes this one tough too, is um, like this database came via an acquisition. It was like, imagine you, you don't have good control of your own company. And then there's also some company that you bought that didn't have good control pre-acquisition and bunch of people leave. <laughs> now you're like, all right, well, I have no idea what's going on with this company. One thing I was curious about is the the headline said, said tests, but then the article said, didn't say tests. I don't think it said like, as like you said, SSNs and, and that kind of thing. But I can't remember what movie or TV show this is, but it reminded me there's that sci-fi esque plot where people like create a specific drug to kill people based off of their DNA or something like that. I don't remember what the name of it is, but that was the first thing I thought of when I saw that the DNA, when I saw the headline, it was like, oh, now people's DNA is out and somebody's going to create some crazy targeted virus to assassinate someone in the, in the database. But I don't think that's actually what's going to happen, but I think that might've been like a Star Trek next generation episode, <laughs> but you would know. I would know. <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> I, think, I think people are going to get knocks on doors from children that they didn't know about. Like, hey, dad. <laughs> it's like that or, Netflix show where that one, have you seen that show or is like that one uh, sperm bank or whatever, the guy running it just started donating his and he ended up having oh, like yeah. 99 children or something crazy. Yeah. Is that, you know, I guess in the grand scheme of things, is that wonderful or is that terrible? You know, only, only eons of time will be able to tell. I like your culture of killing. Uh, you know, Will and I had, uh, had Netflix, um, some, some cool stuff going on over there. So Will had a project, uh, Money Badger. That was, I don't think ever open source, but the great and, yeah, I would go and basically like look at databases that hadn't been accessed in some period of time and snapshot it. So you still have the data if you want it and then shut it down. And how much was that going to save per year? Well, it was a lot. It was like 3 million in the first year. Yeah. So like that kind of stuff. And and we were pushing uh, the Spinnaker folks to go and clean up something. Was it security groups or EBS or something? Something like that. EBS volumes are like one of the things that you just think don't think about cleaning up, but can cost a fortune over time. Totally. And now, now that we have a troubled economy, I think everyone's going to be paying more attention to this stuff. So maybe this could be the, the trigger to go and clean up your old stuff. Yeah. Biggest cost savings. Anything that uses electricity. It's market. Unplug, throw it away. Marie Kondo. You have to thank it first, though. Can you, can you Marie condo things that aren't yours at, at your yes. workplace? Like this, this service doesn't bring me joy. Terminate. It's a new way of doing bone management. <laughs> Just shut the shit down. 
All right, well, you're up. All right. I am up. Minneapolis Public Schools had a data breach. A ransomware group called Medusa posted on the dark web saying they had MPS's data. And if they didn't get paid a million dollars by March 17th, they were going to publicly release it. My take on reading the Twitter thread by Ian Coldwater was that it seemed like Minneapolis public schools were trying to downplay. And, it, you know, Ian, if for folks that listen, don't know, awesome security person, follow them on Twitter, you know, apparently is an MPS parent and, you know, a security person and very concerned. So started doing digging. And, you know, they say that the data breach contained data as far back as 1995, which is a crazy long time. It's kind of one of those, like, do you life cycle data ever? Or, you know, kind of like to the same point of a stale database, should you get rid of data after a certain period of time? I don't know, like, what the period of coverage that they should have had to keep data, but it can't be more than 10 years, I would think. I don't know, because, like, you could need grades for a while. I don't know, like, what the cutoff is. I, I definitely, yeah. like, there I should don't know. be. Like, figure out what the, yeah. the, the <laughs> max amount of time that you, you need the data. But Ian does a really good job of, like, highlighting the facts, you know, social security numbers, this is what you should be doing. You know, these are the scams to look at after. It seemed like MPS had downplayed MFA and, you know, made us, made the people working there think that MFA wasn't a secure thing. And so part of this thread is Ian, like, if, if you're reading and you're an MPS employee or previous, like MFA is your friend, like you should trust that it. it is a good thing to have. So as I was reading it, it was really, I was like getting like read into the story and I'm like, Ooh, what happens? What happens? And I was like, well, March 8th, March 9th, I was like, Ooh, 17th is coming. And of course, you know, Ian posts an update on the 17th that the ransom wasn't paid. The, uh, Threat actors did publish the entire data set on the dark web. And then eventually it got published on normal internet. So it's in, clear. And so uh, Ian actually did some analysis on it and said that there are social security numbers, there are things that you should be concerned and aware about. Minneapolis Public Schools released a, a notice saying that they were going to email and send letters to the affected folks that they did their own analysis as well. I brought up the question to a colleague today that lives in Minneapolis of uh, who was a student back in the day of the school system and had no idea of this breach of like, what happens if you've moved? Like from when, when I was in elementary or middle school, like I, I definitely don't live at the same address that I used to live. So how do you even get hold of me? And back then I didn't have email. <laughs> and so, you know, the folks from 1995 or whatever, how do you even get hold of them? So chances are, if you've gone to MPS, you're probably affected and you should probably just call them or email them or you know, take action. Ian recommends, you know, the typical things, freeze your credit, freeze your utility uh, open, you know, so that you can't basically open anything without your permission. And do it for your kids as well. I can't imagine. I'm trying to think, isn't there like a Netflix show? All Everything goes back to Netflix shows where, uh, oh yeah, Jenny in Georgia, where the Jenny takes out credit cards in her children's names and maxes them all out and stuff. It's just terrible. Uh, so, you know, even though you're not necessarily seeing anything on your credit, doesn't mean that your kids' socials aren't being used out there uh, as well. Devastating. I was trying to look to see if there was a number of records. I didn't see one, but I'm sure it's, you know, a, a large data set. Uh, but don't worry, you're going to get one for a year of credit monitoring. Just got to burn it all down. Yeah, this this credit monitoring thing is garbage. You can imagine that everything's been breached now. Like what you said is the right answer. You you have to let, lock down all of your credit. Everything should be frozen. You should have a pin that is required in order to do anything. And that will actually protect you. You figure your social security numbers breached. Figure your credit cards are going to get breached and you're going to rotate them every like couple of years. Have a very like cynical view on this now. Yeah. I really appreciate Ian's write up because 
how many people found out about this just because Ian has a Twitter presence and a, and a platform like this probably would have gotten semi swept under the rug. And I mean, it sounds like it, it still is kind of, but at least you have somebody like Ian that can shed light on this. And yeah, I was, as you were, Will, I was really impressed by them just keeping the thread up to date. And um, yeah, it was great to be able to read through all of their analysis. Yeah. It must be pretty exhausting to keep fighting the good fight, uh, at least from their point of view. But I was also thinking just as a side thought, how awful would it be to turn 18, go for your first credit card because you're trying to buy books in college or something like that, and your credit's already trashed because of this? No. Totally. Yeah. Fixing credit once it's already bad is supposed to be awful. I haven't gone through it, but it's supposed to be, you know, this like never ending fight. So yeah, that would, that would be awful. I feel like one thing that would make the system better, even though it would also make it a little bit more complicated is to have like two different SSNs, one that is just for people that need to read information. So that's like the one that you give to doctor's offices and whatever. And then you have a separate one that you give to credit card companies and like places where you actually need to open an account because it makes no sense that you give like your landlord, your SSN so that they can run a credit check or whatever. And then they could also just use that same SSN to go open up a credit card in your name. Like the system was, is not being used in the way that it was designed. It definitely needs a refresh. Back when I was in college, they would actually like post grades in class based on your SSN. They would like just list all of them out and like post all of your grades in it. <laughs> well, that was your, uh, your student ID, Travis. Right. I remember yeah, the yeah. days before student IDs were actually a thing. Crazy. And then your student ID was just your uh, SSN backwards. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. And it would also be your login to earlier websites. Um, and I mean, let's even remember, I think it was, was it Equifax? I don't know how many years ago that they said that due to their particular breach that they had, it was 50% of all U.S. adults, like with a social security number, those were exposed. So how many times has this happened? <laughs> I agree. It needs a reboot, but Leaf, are you signing up for that, uh, that overhaul? No, that's, <laughs> that's my one good government idea. My other good government idea is you have an ID instead of an address. And when you move around, your ID stays the same. And so you don't have to change your address a million places. And then all these websites never get your address. So you, when you order a random shirt or whatever, they don't actually know where you live. The only people that have that information is like the carriers and like maybe the zip code, maybe they can get the zip code or something for like shipping calculations or whatever. But yeah, not having to put in your address a million places is my other good government idea. I'm just so cynical. Down. It's all exposed. Your address is exposed. Your social security number is exposed. Your yeah, t-shirt gonna, size exposed. I was going to say, I used to not put my social on the doctor's forms because they don't need it to get your insurance. They have your insurance ID. So they don't actually need your social. And then, you know, after like OPM and all the different breaches that have happened, I've given up. And so I'm like, oh, you want my social? I, even sometimes over like email, it's like, I used to be like, can you, here's an encrypted zip. <laughs> And the password I'll call you with. And now I'm just like, ah, oh, here it is. <laughs> you know, you know, who's not giving up leaf. No, who's not giving up. I don't know. I didn't oh. <laughs> boom. Excellent transition. You loved it. Didn't you? Okay. Biden is going to try and tackle cloud security. And specifically this seems focused at, um, basically they've declared cloud is too big to fail. 
if you have cloud security issues, this is going to cause rolling issues in the country. Um, what they seem to be targeting is kind of confusing to me, which is basically like foreign governments being able to launch attacks from cloud infrastructure. Like this seems, I don't know, if you had a list of 25 problems, this would be like below 25, in my opinion. So they, they mentioned, for example, the solar winds breach where Russian attackers were able to use infrastructure to avoid detection for a while. That seems like a pretty flimsy argument to me. I mean, if if your company is relying on just looking at IP addresses and attribution to do, to do detection, then you're probably going to have a bad time. Uh, what I do like is that as part of this, first, they say that more stuff is coming. And second, they say that basically they're going to need some kind of regulation. Like cloud providers themselves are going to have to do more than they've been doing today. And what I'd actually really like to see, you know, when I, when I started my company, I, I started looking at different compliance regimes that you have to go through. And like very few of them actually have reasonable updated guidance on what cloud security should be. So I do think that we need some kind of like baseline level standard of what companies do if they're going to operate in the cloud. You know, something like SOC 2 or PCI or whatever, but like really geared towards cloud stuff. I'm hoping that this will come out of it. And I guess... A bright note here, uh, the government does seem to be taking advice from smart people. So the article I read mentioned Mark Rogers. That guy's awesome. So if we get more people like Mark, you know, talking to the government about issues, then hopefully some good policy will come. Yeah, I mean, you just need to get on that panel and just put bioresourcely in one of these bills. And it's just a rocket ship at that point. That's it. That'll do it. You know, I think also the this, this concept of like a security bill of rights that uh, Leaf and I had talked about when we were at Segment and also Mike Tan, woohoo, Mike Tan, when we were thinking about like, what do you charge for as far as security features and security like environment that's available? And we actually think that there should be a pretty big baseline of things that are baked in. You know, you should never have to pay for MFA because that's dumb. I think at least, you know, like a SOC 2 type 2 or whatever it might be that's appropriate for your industry should already be there. But there can be extra like security features um, that make your life easier, um, but that don't necessarily make you a ton safer. And I think that maybe we need to get to a security bill of rights just because these problems are just going to continue to get worse. And it's just going to cost us into the bill at some point. And so we just need to figure out like, what is the minimum safe baseline that we need to offer everybody? Just a thought there. I love that. Yeah. The MFA tax, SSO tax, they're so annoying. Yeah. One of the things that the article mentioned was uh, basically there's some breach that was made worse because the company hadn't paid extra for Microsoft's uh, extra security logs. So on one hand, it's like, yes, you know, we should, we should enable things that are going to let customers respond to breaches better. On the other hand, some of those logs can get pretty expensive. So like, for example, if the government mandated that Amazon make um, S3 server logs available to everybody for free, then that could actually incur legitimate significant expense. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see like where that line is drawn. Yeah. That's what I was thinking too, because people love to complain about security stuff costing money. And, and I totally get it. Like people want good security to be available to everybody. But it's not like this stuff doesn't cost anything for the company, both in terms of delivery, as well as just people building it and maintaining it. And I mean, it's no secret, like my my team that I work on has built a lot of this stuff. And so it's like, it's not like something that companies are just, you know, not spending any money on and then charging their their customers. So yeah, I agree. It's like, e even if you don't charge for it directly, 
as Travis said, like, it's just going to make the cost of everything go up. And like, maybe that's fine. You know, maybe that that's just like the cost of, of doing business and like having more secure stuff. Like, I think that is like a reasonable approach and like a reasonable way to look at this stuff. But I mean, we pay for, I mean, I think the cost of like higher quality and safety, you know, that might be built into like, I don't know, manufacturing baby food or something like that. I think we just need to accept it as like, I I've always thought of security as an aspect of quality. It's like a expensive, scary, multi-dimensional aspect, but you know, it's a quality item. And I think there needs to just be better quality control on a baseline, just the way what we would do for diapers, car seats, cars, you know, anything that's important. One other interesting aspect of the article is uh, they mentioned that basically a bank had told the treasury department that, uh, that they didn't know enough about the cloud provider security model to make a reasonable risk assessment. So if the government says that cloud is too big to fail and that there needs to be, you know, like for example, the strategically important banks or whatever, like they have a bunch of regulation and transparency and whatever, it, you could end up in a position where cloud providers are required to disclose a bunch of security details um, publicly. I think that would be really interesting. One uh, interesting attack from cloud perspective of like insecure cloud resources where the, the shiny hunters group that I think was finally taken down uh, that targeted like IP theft via GitHub attacks, they would leverage vulnerable internet facing systems and basically like compromise your server and then host their next landing page there so that they were basically constantly bouncing around and abuse complaints and takedown requests never went to anything that could attribute back to them. So that was one of the, their like MOs, which I thought was pretty interesting. It's like free resources to run your attacks from and you know, all the fun and early day Terraform cloud. We used to have uh, people trying to do like email campaigns from Terraform runners. We eventually just had to like nip that completely. So it's yeah, free computed. People are going to get creative. Yeah. I don't understand what asserting your identity is going to do. They'll just compromise some existing company's infrastructure and use it to launch attacks like in the same way that a lot of these spam emails get sent out. It's not like this is going to make it so that the Russians can't launch stuff from Amazon. Right. No, exactly. Or, I mean, I'm sure they're capable of putting together fake IDs and whatever. Yeah. Or buying just like ID credit card combos from some other breacher or whatever. All right, let's move on. SVB, Colleen. Yeah, I think this is a topic close to uh, many of our hearts um, for different reasons. I think everyone's aware that um, Silicon Valley Bank failed. And so, again, this affects a lot of folks. It, it could affect you at your company or friends who are working at companies based in the Bay Area. The sectors that were impacted are everything from technology, life science, healthcare, private equity, venture capital, and also premium wine industries. So everything, oh, no. that, everything that the Bay Area cares about. <laughs> uh, so a little bit of the background and timeline here, because there's it's it's thick. Um, so it was um, Friday, March 10th. It feels like forever ago, but it was still technically this month. The bank failed because there was a run on their deposits. And so um, this went down as the largest bank failure since like the 2007-2008 financial crisis and is now logging in at second largest in US history. So not something you want to be uh, notable for. And one of the the early editorials that I'll throw in here is that, you know, as we may or may not know, I think most of us know this, that threat actors, good ones are trendy AF 
And so whenever there's something that's going on in the news, there's a hot topic, there's a problem, there's a this or a that, you know, imagine like if there's an earthquake, you know, they're going to be popping up sites to try to get payments or to try to steal information. And, and sure enough, even on the same day, they started um, creating fake domains. And then into that weekend, they just continue to proliferate. This means just as a security practitioner, like keep up with the news. I know I hate the news. I generally get it through like lots of different filters, uh, usually late night comedy. But, you know, if you if you're running a team and you need you need some sort of information coming in like this, like get get that thread until get someone reading the news and then informing the rest of the team so things can be updated because reading the news just as boring as it seems can be a really big clue as to what the next subject and what the next big attack could be. So the types of scams that they were out there, first and foremost, like these threat actors were impersonating SVP customers, like concerned customers. And they were saying that they needed payments sent to a new bank account that the threat actor controlled. And then also for, uh, contacting former clients as F SVB to offer them like a support package, legal services, loans, other fake services, just getting in there and like anybody who could potentially be a victim, like victimizing them even more. So even if you were in a position where you didn't necessarily have anything to worry about about this, because it's still in the news, like it can take a different spin. So for example, Circle, which is a peer-to-peer -peer payments company, and they manage the USDC stablecoin. They got dragged into this and, you know, they had like a 3.3 billion cash reserve in Silicon Valley Bank. And so what the threat actors were doing, they were capitalizing on pretty much unfounded liquidity concerns because as, you know, as, as of when I read the article, it was actually, they were okay, but phishing emails were still sent to the customers and that led them to crypto scam sites. And so you would like QR code, steal digital wallets, assets, customer details, despite them not actually having an issue, like Circle did not have an issue. And so I think the ironic subnote on this is that good news actually sparked this piece that happened to Circle because Circle then, you know, had announced USDC is going to remain, remain redeemable at a one-to-one -one rate with the dollar. Everything's fine. And so phishing sites sprang up and said like, hey, take advantage of the one-to-one -one deal or whatever it was. And they're like, ah. So they tried to do something good and they got taken advantage of. And then there are some security researchers that said essentially like these fake sites would request that users scan a QR code that led to the crypto wallet compromise. And there's other write-ups that go a little bit deeper into just the crypto piece of it. And so Proofpoint. So Proofpoint reported this and here's a quote. Messages impersonated several cryptocurrency brands coming from malicious SendGrid accounts, ouch, containing SendGrid URLs, directing to several different domains that asked the victim to claim their crypto and redeem their uh, USD. And so they'd click the button and it opened up like a DeFi URL. So then the victim needs to have a DeFi handler installed. Then they are lured into a smart contract that would transfer the contents of their entire wallet over to the attacker. So this is, this is just an example of attackers taking advantage of, of bad news and just capitalizing on it as, as much as they possibly could. I hope this didn't happen to anybody, but unfortunately these scams happen because some of them are going to be successful. So that's, that's the long and short of it. Just wanted to hear some thoughts. I think there's probably a lot of thoughts and feelings. So I wanted to leave space for that. Scammers are fucking terrible. It's, it's so bad. You get hit up by any of them post SVB. No. Yeah. So I, for anybody that doesn't know, I, I, my company was impacted. We had all of our runway in SVB. So there was a, like a 72 or, or so hour period where we weren't sure if we'd be able to get money in time to make payroll. It was definitely, you know, very, it was one of the craziest times I've been through in a, in a work situation. 
but yeah, I mean, you know, there was, there was a lot of stuff going on and I can, I can definitely see how that's an opportunity for scammers, like lots of information, a lot of people that were, you know, kind of desperate that weren't using their full brain and a lot of time urgency to figure out solutions. So that, that is a big opportunity for scammers, but yeah, it's terrible that they never fail to, to take advantage of that kind of stuff. I get scared wiring money in normal times. Like anytime I have to wire money, I'm like, this is a terrifying process. Like, why do I have to enter in all of these numbers? And like, why don't the field names match exactly between, you know, what they've said and like what's on the side for my bank. And I actually was transferring some money via wire for uh, an angel investment I was doing during that time. And they were like, Hey, you know, we weren't using SVB before we're now using chase you know, please don't send money to the old, um, you know, bank account. I, f- I forget what the bank was like, you know, we'll just say Schwab or whatever. Um, but I could easily see how somebody could just send one of those out. And, you know, if, if there's already something in place, you're like, yeah, obviously I'm not going to send it to the SVB bank. You know, that place is shut down. Like, of course I'm going to send it to the new one. So yeah, it's definitely, definitely smart, definitely opportunistic, but yeah. Fuck them scammers. And then what do you do to prevent? I mean, cause I, I had some thoughts about, you know, I texted thoughts. the founder. I did what you said. I went just like out of band. I was like, they didn't compromise this guy's cell phone. Is yeah. this space bank, you know, ending in these few numbers legit. When like very modern technology le- leads you astray, just pick up the phone and talk to somebody. <laughs> And make sure it's actually them voice impersonating them. And I mean, I was thinking like what maybe phishing training for, you know, even small companies, like making sure that that actually gets done. But yeah, I I just think that when there's a great opportunity, um, there's a time limit, there's a sense of urgency. People are scared. I think what phishing training can do is let you know after you've done something, after you've given away like everything, like you just know sooner that maybe that didn't feel right. but how do you actually prevent this from happening? I, I don't have an answer. Yeah, scammers are really good at getting you to think with the urgency brain. And then, you know, then any phishing training that you've taken is out the window and you're not going to use it anyway. I want to know metrics around how many people fell for that, you know, in the, in the heat of things a couple of weeks ago, right? I, I can imagine to your, to y'all's points of, if, if I sent a link to someone's like, fill this out now and your money's guaranteed, like who would have definitely, especially if you had a, a really good lookalike domain with a really good typo squat that I can't imagine. I, I saw an article today where like a, not SVP, SVB related, but like scam and money related where a principal wrote a check or like wire got, fell for a fraud and they sent a hundred thousand dollars of like school money to a scammer and felt so bad that like they resigned. And so it just, it happens everywhere. It's just, crazy. It's On another, note. <laughs> I was gonna say, that's another one for you, Leaf. uh, an ID system for bank information. So no one actually has wire information. <laughs> I don't know. Leaf, yeah. bring up something more cheerful. All right. Uh, yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. So this, uh, the next one we're going to talk about is, uh, a blog, uh, from the folks over at crash override, uh, security tools can't just be friction free was SCA the tipping point? And the main point of this article is that it isn't enough for developer-focused security tools to be easy to use. They also have to stay out of developers' way. And then now, they also need to solve a problem that developers have. It's something separate from you know the security problem. And I really like the kick in the pants that this article gives security vendors. And it feels 
very Netflix paved pathy where, you know, you want to make something so good that people can't imagine not using it. And you just sneak some security in there and they, you know, they're secure because they're, they're doing things the easy way. And the example that they give that I really like is for a SAS uh, static analysis vendor to have a plugin for prettier, which is a really popular code formatting tool, like guarantee a very large number of developers at your company use it. And so having something like that, that in addition to fixing formatting issues, they could also quickly fix security stuff because working in a repo that doesn't have like some auto formatting, is just such so annoying. Like you would, you wouldn't want to do it. And so having security be that easy is it would be great. I love it. Yeah. This is the way you, you want to create something that developers want to use and then have that thing just make security automatic. Anytime you can get to that pattern, it's a win-win. And there are very few win-wins when you're talking about security and developers, usually one or both of those parties is unhappy in any given transaction and if you can if you can create a win-win situation where devs get what they need, security prevents misconfiguration, then then you ride off into the sunset. Yeah, I do I do like that there is a huge focus on making things easier for developers. Like even if tools can't get to the point where they're solving an additional kind of dev-centric problem, at least getting to the point where stuff isn't actively antagonistic to developers feels like a huge win compared to 10 years ago, or, or maybe even like five years ago. So yeah, I, I do think that security tools, at least some of them are trending in the right direction. And the ones that weren't built with this in mind are starting to look pretty archaic. Agreed. I think the biggest problem that we've uh, come across is when you have some of these things that are you have developer-sided, like the developer needs to use them in order to do the, the right thing. How do you enforce that? developers are using them. Like, I think the, one of the biggest things for us was like, how do you prevent secrets from being committed to code? You do pre-commit hooks and all the things, but how do you get employees to actually install the pre-commit hook and make it flexible enough that they could still commit a sample key. That's not a, an active key, but for like documentation or, or such. But I think like GitHub finally released the ability to do repo side hooks. Uh, something that I think GitLab's had for a while, but it's, Making it easy to, to y'all's point is definitely the way, but Travis, you remember as much as I love the building blocks that we had at Netflix is like to do the right thing was nine building blocks. And so you start orchestrating all the different things together and that, that became the problem. It's like, okay, how do we orchestrate all these things for you? Uh, because it's not as easy as just a single click anymore. Um, right. I, think that, I think that's what we're going to hit next with, with these is like, cool. I got I solved the dev problem, but how do I, ensure that, you know, everyone has it, or you know, how do I do the check on the server side as well? And how do I make those checks exactly the same and perform the same way? Because the tool doesn't necessarily support, support it in both areas or, or something like that. Right. Yeah. You, there's definitely some, you know, we're stitching together like 10 pieces of magic issues, but if you take a step back and then you look at what the ground you can actually cover with that, it's pretty amazing. You know, it's like all of the stuff that gets set up for you, you know, with something like Spinnaker, you get automatic deployments and you get all this like logging and alerting built in for free. You know, back in the day when you didn't have this stuff, they would, you know, literally probably take you years to come up with like all of this basic stuff. So I think that's pretty cool where you can just spin up an app and it takes a few hours. Read. All right, Will, Android. Cool. Yeah, so uh, baseband hacking or more so uh, zero days in baseband chipsets. So Google Project Zero did some analysis and uh, I guess are digging into hardware as well. Didn't realize they did some hardware stuff also. I know they do a bunch of software things, but yeah. So Project Zero dug into the 
Exynos, E-X-Y-N-O-S, I don't know how you say it, uh, chipset uh, that is commonly found in Samsung devices, as well as a couple of Google Pixel phones. Uh, they found a total of 18 zero days in their analysis, which is a crazy number. It's like four of them being super severe, which would allow anyone with with the right uh, code and know, knowing how to exploit the vulnerability. All I would need is your phone number and I could take control of your phone, essentially rewrite firmware, you know, think about like uh, privacy problems here, likely to be able to, to have like key loggers and things installed such that you'd be able to basically just completely own someone's phone with zero interaction from the user. So in all the other previous data breaches, there's tons of numbers out there, you know, script it, and, you know, ideally from a threat actor perspective, own everyone. The interesting thing here uh, in the, the articles that I've read that will be in the show notes, uh, it only affected Samsung devices uh, that were uh, non-US made or for the non-US market. The US-based phones had the Snapdragon Qualcomm chips instead. And so if you had a U US Samsung phone, you were fine. Google patched, I believe, for Pixel 7, uh, but it's still yet to be determined if Pixel 6 has been addressed. Uh, Samsung has said that they've created patches for this, but the, the articles that I've read are like, I can't confirm if Samsung's e distributed those to users. Uh, and this has been a common you know thread with me and some of my teams here internally is, you know, can we trust all phones alike when you think about MFA or even accessing customer uh, data? I know Leaf's going to say WebAuthn is is the right path forward, and I agree. Uh, but you know, thinking about uh, just you know from a BYOD policy perspective, probably give access to Google Drive, email. There's sensitive stuff in there as well, and it's crazy to think about you know these zero-click uh, vulnerabilities or zero days. Are they like most dangerous as they as they come? My guess is yeah, that like there's probably nation. The <laughs> yeah. Uh, my guess is that, you know, nation states knew about these already and they've probably been exploited uh, in, you know, very strategic means and not widely, but yeah, pretty interesting find. Uh, I'm sure nation states are mad at Google project zero because this is going to close some doors for them. But yeah, I think it, to me, it continues to highlight the point of like, which phones do we trust? I remember kind of our approach at Netflix was very similar. Like don't trust everything, but have a, a set of things that you, you will allow access to your network. And I think this is uh, what highlights. I know, you know, I used to teach a wireless class for a university. And so these kind of things were topics that we talked about. But uh, the, the thing I always recommend for folks, especially if you travel, is never accept a baseband upgrade while you're traveling. Don't put a different SIM card into your phone that was purchased overseas. Uh, pay for the roaming. And like if you get a, a pop-up for upgrading your baseband, your phone's still going to work if you hit cancel. Just hit cancel and wait till you're back stateside or wherever your home country is uh, before you you upgrade. Because that's definitely something also to be aware of is, you know, you connect to these rogue base stations. They now, you know, there's a, there's an inherent level of trust on your cellular device as well. But, uh, yeah, I thought the, the biggest thing for me was 18 zero days. It just seems like a huge number. And it's like, at what point did the researcher get tired <laughs> of finding bugs and stop? Or is that actually all the all the bugs that there were? I wonder what software would actually hold up though if Project Zero just like focused their attention <clears> on that. <throat> and probably like with that team, they could go and find 18 bugs in anything. Yeah, I think it depends on, you know, how many eyes have been on the software, right? And that's why I think people love open source because more eyes on it. But once again, you have to, 
it's, it's, it's one of those things where I think the trend that I've always noticed is once someone starts looking, other people start looking and there's more to come. And so I wonder if this is just the start of baseband vulnerabilities in some of these chipsets. This reminds me of when uh, Tavis went aggro on the password managers and he filed like a hundred bugs in a month or something. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I remember uh, Google project zero started poking at vault at one point and I was just like, Oh, <laughs> <Uh-oh. laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this stuff is honestly this, like I said, this is like some movie stuff. Like this is something that five years ago, I would have been like, that's unrealistic. Uh, but I guess, it, I guess it's not so unrealistic. I feel like there should maybe be a setting, um, you know, Will, you made some really good points about like not doing baseband upgrades abroad and stuff like that. Seems like that should be a, a setting where it's like, don't accept or, you know, don't prompt baseband upgrades on new network or something like that. And you have to toggle this off to do a baseband on whatever, whatever network is, is not the one that you currently have on the phone or something like that. I don't think I've never gotten something like that while I'm abroad, but uh, that is a, a really good thing to think about. It should at least prompt you with some information because people don't know what this is. So, yeah. you know, pop up and be like, hey, you know, this can have these impacts. You know, only accept this if you trust whatever. Like, because otherwise, you know, my mom's not going to understand like baseband update and like what that is. Even if, yeah, like you said, even if you just put only accept this, if you trust the network you're currently on, that would be enough for most people. Like, even if you didn't articulate what it could do, like most people would be like, Oh yeah, I'm in Mexico right now. Like I'm not on my normal Verizon. I don't trust this network. I'm going to hit cancel. That would probably work pretty well. I think most people trust anything. Yeah. I don't know. There's, there's people that would think twice about like trusting the rando network that they're on. I think that we're, I mean, we're kind of fighting human nature because we've been telling people like updates are important, you know, update your phone, update your iPad, update your computer. Um, and so when they say update, they're like, oh, good. Then I'm going to be at the newest, better, you know, greatest, safest, whatever it is. And so I think that's, um, that's also really sneaky and tricky, but, uh, but are, is there just like a handful of countries? Like, so the U S Canada and maybe like one or two other countries aren't using the those, that specific chipset we're using Snapdragon. So that means like the rest of the world was vulnerable to this was, uh, that was the victim pool. Yeah, Samsung's well, a super popular device. I think you're right. I think every nation state had it and they were just like, yes. <laughs> I almost bet one of my paychecks on it. No, not my text. I wouldn't bet my entire salary, but, uh, maybe a paycheck. Uh, but yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see metrics or if, if from this release, people start coming out and be like, oh, that's why like all these like coincidental things happened. It'd be really interesting too, if in the Android upgrades, if there would be a way to check what version firmware you had and tell which devices were actually exploited prior. Uh, and if, the, yeah, I don't know how they would tell that or not, but it'd be interesting to, uh, I wonder if Google's thought about that in their analysis. Uh, seems like from a project zero perspective, having you know some insights in the Google ecosystem that they might be able to get some of that stuff. I wonder if that would be something that they actually collect through and not the, the phones that and allow data collection back to Google analytics or whatever, and, and see if they ever publish that result. Leave you have our final story. Yeah, let's do it. This one's kind of a fun one. Um, this is about valve, uh, the company that makes Dota two banning 40,000 hackers. 
Uh, I love this story because I love when video game companies ban cheaters. Uh, cheaters and multiplayer games are absolute scum. And I thought this was really smart because Valve basically figured out how a certain family of, of hacks worked. They would read like data that was should have only been available to the game client itself and use that as a way to provide an advantage to you as a player that's cheating. And so what Valve did is they basically put a honeypot in the code base. They put some data in the game client that normally the client would never read. And, but the hacks would read it because they just kind of look at everything and, you know, indiscriminately, like just read everything. And so they use this as a really uh, effective way to identify who was using these cheats and they, you know, can feel confident that the people that got caught up in this trap were, were all cheating. Developing cheats and anti-cheats is a huge game of cat and mouse. So I'm sure something will pop up soon if there isn't something already, but I'm glad that Valve used the ban hammer here and got rid of a bunch of scumbags on Dota 2. I don't understand how you have something in the client that the user is not supposed to have. Like the kind of baseline level here is like, you figure that the client, like the user has full access to it. So if you don't want the user to have it, you don't send it in the client. My guess is it's something where it has to exist in the client. Um, Like maybe it's like the status of something that is hidden in a bush or something that's like near you or like a player that, you know, you could in theory hit with something if you happen to like shoot a projectile in that direction that you mm. it would, like, you wouldn't have time to figure out what the, the state of the server is or something like that. Like that's, I, I don't know exactly how this one works, but my guess is it's something like that. Makes sense. Yeah. There's definitely some cool anti-cheat work. I remember Riot Games talking a lot about the stuff that they were doing. Yeah. That was a great AppSec, uh, AppSec USA presentation when the the right games, the uh, anti-cheat or abuse person came in. It's fascinating. Some of those, uh, if you think back, like when we were younger, uh, all the crack me's and things. Yeah, I remember running like Adobe and Dreamweaver. That was 100% cracked. But you know, learning about how to write software that like detects debuggers or you know, trying to make sure that your binary can't be manipulated uh, or it doesn't work. There's so many different interesting techniques out there that uh, I know there's not a ton of public information on, but that world's just fascinating to me. Yeah, These cheats were being used during those like really like $20 million tournaments. Is that, is that part of the motivation or was it just because new people who were coming onto this, they were getting super discouraged because they're like, you can't even move without immediately getting mowed down. Um, Or was it financial? I think a lot of it is just, people that want to be better at the game and they're bad. And so they cheat a lot of the big tournaments. I don't, I don't know how it was during COVID. Maybe it's a little bit different, but a lot of the big tournaments are in person and it would be very hard to cheat in a lot of these games in person because a lot of the cheats rely on you, like seeing something that normally wouldn't be available to, to you. So like a wall hack would allow you to see a player that's on the other side of a wall um, and something like that would be incredibly obvious in person because people would be like, yeah, you can't do that. There's some cheats that you could maybe sneak in. And I'm sure people have like something that's like a modest aim assist or something like that. Like if they, you know, if they didn't recognize that you were using that, but a lot of times the place that's doing the hosting, like they'll, they'll provide like machines or something like that for you to, to prevent stuff like this. So yeah, I don't know. I think it would be hard to, to get away with something like this in a tournament, but I'm sure people have, um, like if it can happen in chess 
I could probably yeah. happen with this too. Hundred percent. All right, back by popular demand. It's a our favorite game. Is, is it, it our demand or the? Was it our our followers? Who knows? It's probably <laughs> both. <laughs> it's it's my my personal demands. Uh, okay, we're gonna play GPT or vendor. So I'm gonna read you five different ones. I'm gonna give you marketing spiel, and you all try and guess which one was an, is an actual vendor and which one is GPT generated. Sounds Wait, good. this is number four, right? Not three. This is the new and improved. Yeah, this GPT, is the yeah. GPT. This is GPT four. Got it. All right. All right. Hands up, because Leaf will tell you that you're you're cheating and you're looking things up. So That's I'm gonna I'm gonna th- <laughs> I'm gonna throw out two, and you tell me. Y'all tell me. Yeah, first or second one that I read is is the GPT. Easy, flexible cybersecurity solutions for everyone. Securing your entire infrastructure has never been easier. Our multi-factor authentication MFA single sign-on SSO, remote access and access control products deploy fast in any environment. We help keep companies safer than ever before with minimal downtime and optimized productivity. Or uncomplicate security, empower efficiency. Revolutionize revolutionize your digital landscape by seamlessly integrating MFA and SSO with our cutting-edge solutions. Experience the perfect balance of superior protection and streamlined access designed to elevate your business's cyber resilience and user experience. Which one is GPT? Do we just shout it out or hold up our hand? Yeah, dude, hold up your hand. All right, so Colleen and Will, you're on number one is GPT and leave your number two. And before we say which one, what vendor do, what vendor do people think this is? I, th- I was thinking like one of those like cloud access vendors. Um, like job cloud or something. Yeah, or like tele is like teleport. Is that what they do? Or am I thinking of temporal? All right. Uh the first one is duo. So we stumped Will and Colleen. Oh, interesting. Uh, all right, I here we go. Sure yes. It was uh GPT because they actually uh spelled the acronym out. <laughs> well, so yeah, we, we you got a hundred percent last time. I know now I'm failing. GPT four is better. I did really bad last time. I think I only got one right. <laughs> all right, here we go. Second one. So the first option is explore our market-leading SaaS management platform. With the ability to streamline and automate critical work like lifecycle processes and day-to-day operations, learn why thousands of customers enjoy greater operational efficiency and employee productivity. Or beyond protection, experience the future of security. Boost your company's safety using our easy-to-use SaaS management tool. Protect your data effortlessly while enjoying a hassle-free digital experience. Which one is GPT? Yeah, I think so as well. Yep, you all got it right. A is a uh, better better cloud. Okay. But I figured this out. I've got the algorithm in my head. All right, let's see. Well, let's see if you can do it. <laughs> all right, number three. One identity, unmatched security. Defend, simplify, conquer. Safeguard your organization with comprehensive endpoint and unified identity protection solution. Streamline user access, fortify your defenses, and achieve unparalleled security all under one platform. Or... Stop breaches with a unified endpoint and identity protection delivered from the cloud. Comprehensive visibility and protection across your critical areas of risk, endpoints, workloads, data, and identity. Which one is GPT? Uh, B, the second one is CrowdStrike. So Algorithm's working. Yep. All right, Well, Let's we'll see if you got it figured out. Okay. Fourth can one. I, can I pre-guess? Yep. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. What, what company? I don't know. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't read it. I just pre-guessing. You're just trying to like see if you got my algorithm. Yep. 
Not your right. algorithm. I got the chat GPT algorithm and I'll explain it at the end. If, if, if this is correct, I'll tell you why. Okay. Gain business value through security. Get more than cloud native application protection platform with meaningful intelligence for security teams and developers at the right time in the right place. Procure the protection you need the way you want it and deploy the way you need. Or next-gen cyber resilience, redefine security excellence. Discover the future of cybersecurity with our advanced platform designed to protect your network applications and data. Empower your organization with intelligent adaptive protection that evolves with your digital landscape, ensuring a secure and com confident online presence. Which one is GPT? Uh, yeah, right, Will's right. Uh, a is trend micro. All right. Well, if you get it right on the on the last one, we have to hear hear your algorithm. Well, pretty guessing. Okay. Uh, cloud confidence. Unite, protect, soar. Fortify your digital assets with our all-in-one cloud security platform, blending protection and efficiency. Easily defend, oversee, and control your cloud environment, guaranteeing a strong and flexible shield for your evolving business. Or two, protecting your cloud environments requires a unified cloud-native platform. We connect in minutes via API and achieve full coverage across PaaS resources, virtual machines, containers, and serverless functions. It scales to any cloud environment with zero impact on your resource or workload performance. Which one is GPT? Is is two whiz? Yeah, two's whiz. Yes, <laughs> called it. Yep. All right, tell us the algorithm, Will. Uh, so it seems like ChatGPT does like big title and then like adjective or like words after. And mm -hmm. so in that case, it's cloud confidence, unite, protect, soar. The one before was. Next-gen cyber resilience, redefining security, and all the other ones are just like seamless titles. I had to, uh, I had to like actually tell it to refine some of these. So in that one, the unite protect soar. Uh, I think it, initially it put like sky high in the title. I was like, no, 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 redo it without sky high. <laughs> it's like that's an actual <laughs> company. <laughs> My theory this time was I just picked whichever one was worse, and I assigned that to Chat GPT. Um, and that so was, I, that was my theory last time was that the longer, the longer of the two seemed to be the chat GPT three. And the only one I got wrong was trend, which I actually could see trend coming up with something worse than chat GPT. So <laughs> I think my takeaway from this is like, is chat GPT soon going to replace the need for, you know, people who come up with written marketing material. You need less of them. It's pretty close. You can cover maybe, more. Ground. Maybe it'll prevent companies copying each other in marketing and things. No, or maybe, maybe worse. it makes it even worse, right? Yeah. Everyone has the same language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My takeaway is that like, after like reading out 10 of these things, it's just like, my mind is numb. I need a drink. All right. On that note, thank you, Colleen, for coming. It was fun. Everyone, thank please you. subscribe if you like this and uh, catch you all next time. Thank you. Thanks all. <laughs>